Good to uh, talk to you again. You were uh, on a little vacation recently, weren't you? Well, you were a part of it for a while. We were in Austin, yeah. Had a good time. A couple weeks off. It's yeah, nice. It's, it's good to see you. Yeah. Yeah. Times. yeah. Back in <laughs> sunny California. Back in the lodge, yeah. yeah. What are we do today? <laughs> well, you know what today is. What is today? It's actually our 50th podcast. Can you believe that? What? Really? I thought it was like 60, but that's good. Congratulations. <laughs> Did we get something? <laughs> no, no, but 50 in nine months. That's a pretty good, uh, pretty good run. Pretty good pace. Plus yeah. all the tweets, that's a lot of action there, friend. It's a lot, lot of action. action, yes, a lot, a lot of, of action. action. Well, you're keeping the torch alive, so am I. So we're here to watch, uh, do a rewatch of part seven. Is there any uh, preface you want to give the audience? This is, I think, one of our favorite non, like, uh, like extraordinary episodes. Part eight, obviously, <laughs> part 17, 18. But, you know, this one is, I think, a little maybe heavier on the exposition. Um, especially kind of the first half, but uh, there's a lot that's going on and you can just kind of feel by the end of this episode that it's kind of like the end of a first act, that we're going to be going onto this next kind of uh, tier of uh, supernaturalism. And, and we certainly didn't know at the time what part eight would, you know, would entail, but this is a really good episode. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of characters. Um, like I said, a lot of exposition, but it's it's one of my personal favorites. Yeah, and weird shit starts happening, like really weird shit. So I like that. I think part seven is a nice lead up to part eight. So uh, you ready to go? I want to like just have a brief discussion before we get into it. I mentioned this to you the other night, but I just wanted to kind of throw it out there again of this discovery watching part three again, um, where Cooper is in the purple room and he sees the American girl that's played by the actress who played Renette uh, Pulaski. And uh, the whole thing with the pin thing, and you always laugh at the pin thing, but I really <laughs> think there's something with that damn pin because... The linchpin of the series. Once you figure that out, then dang, that's Skippy. in place. So you're yeah. saying you may have a clue. Yeah, well, I'm not saying I have a clue, but it's just it, it, like that's the last time we see Cooper with the FBI pin until we see him in part 17 uh, in the furnace room with uh, Diane and, and Cole. But it was interesting of what she says to him, the American girl. She says, when you get there, you will already be there. Now, kind of take that as, OK, you're going to Rancho Rosa where Dougie was. But you know, technically, Dougie's not there. He's not going to a place where he is. But you said it because he, you think it's a dream. Is that why you say Dougie's not technically there? Well, he's just he he isn't. He gets pulled out, right? He gets sucked out um, before Cooper arrives. But when Cooper shows up with the FBI pin in Part Seventeen in the furnace room, he technically is already there because you've got the big head Cooper, the dreamer Cooper in that scene, and also on uh, American Girl's watch, it's two fifty three, and it's also two fifty three at that same time in Part Seventeen. I'm not saying that that's it. Everything from, you know, that moment to part 17 didn't really happen, even though we kind of have <laughs> I'm saying that. Well, not it happened, but it necessarily didn't happen in like kind of the real sense. I mean, we think that it was kind of a, 
a construct of some sort, whether it was in Cooper's mind or he was, you know, obviously he was, I th- we think he was in the lodge, but um, I just think that that is an interesting uh, parallel that since we're dealing with multiple timelines and dreams, that that's just another facet of it to me that kind of makes sense. You could take a jump from that point to part 17. Yeah, so quitting is like a shortcut. Like we're trying to figure out the labyrinthian maze of the Black Lodge. And there's like a, you can take the, the long way around, which is like three through 17, jump through that portal and be Dougie for a while. Or you can take the shortcut and just go straight from part three electrical socket right as the big head at 253 and 17 and going down that hallway was still with the FBI pin. I like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. One other thing with that. Different you, options. You remember that. It's a choose both. your own adventure, Tom. That's what you, I think yeah. you say it very uh, poetically. I Choose think your true. own adventure, friend. That's what it, it's all, Keep the Mystery Alive is all about. <laughs> One thing, though, before we get started, you know, Dougie and Mr. C, both those scenes, they're, they vomit, right? Uh, in <laughs> Dougie in Rancho Rosa and Mr. C in uh, his car. And Mr. C is trying to keep the vomit in him. Dougie doesn't know what the hell is going on. He just feels funny. But it seems like... Whoever vomits first, that's where Cooper's going to go. And it it just seems like that's the case because as soon as Dougie vomits, then boom, he's gone. And that's where Cooper goes. And then Mr. C is able to vomit all over the place because Cooper's already gone to that place. But you got to have a little bit of that Garmabazia juice in you before to be able to conjure a, a lodge spirit. If you have none of that, then you can't do it. All right, you ready, Tom? Everybody hit and play along with us with the Rancho Rosa logo. So when's the last time you saw this episode? Probably in my marathon, uh, rewatching the whole series before the finale. So, yeah. Name me three scenes from this uh, episode. Jerry in the woods, humming. <laughs> the humming, the Benhorn humming scene, and that's uh, in the woodsman in the, in the hallway. Okay, good, good, good. There we go. A plus, that was a creepy-ass scene. Yeah, that was. What do you think that, uh, what do you think that means? What the woodsman you, means? Well, I mean, in walking down the hallway, Lieutenant Knox, do you think... Uh, she saw him. I think she she sensed him. I don't think she saw him. She looks like she did see him, though. She, right. I mean, to me, she. I mean, she really acknowledged him. I think so. We'll have to upon this rewatch. Let's find out. Let's solve it right now. All right. Let's this is it. one of my. Even though we're not there yet, this is. I think one of my favorite openings. I remember vividly, the the just watching it and seeing the cold like the smash cut almost of Jerry Horn, just looking startled. He looks really scared. <laughs> it seems like he's looking for something, right? Yeah, I see a little movement in the woods there. A little, some little, a little yeah, there's there. several shots. It's like he's, you, I mean, you do the frame by frame. Have you gone frame by frame through the woods? See if you see anything? Little Bob. The pieces. only time I did the dirty frame bearded by, men. <laughs> the only time I did uh, the frame by frame in the woods was the part 17 after it gets after oh, yeah. gets pulled out. I swear right I saw something, but I think it was my mind playing tricks on me. But uh, when the convenience store disappeared, like I think I freeze framed the wood, all the smoke that happens after it's gone. I thought I saw some faces in there for a while, but I was just. Fooling oh, myself. in part yeah. 15. Yeah. Yeah. So Jerry calls Ben. <laughs> Ben's like, ben. So done with this. Well, once he finds out, once Jerry says, I, when he says, I think I'm high. Doesn't he just give that Ben horn? Yeah. Kind defeated, of like, yeah. Bow the head. <laughs> right. He's been humbled, Tom. Ever since the pine weasel, <laughs> yeah. that's true. That's Maybe it's true. the ghost of the pine weasel because when he built the go- the ghostwood jail, uh, the Mark Frost book, that he must have eradicated many many pine weasels from the woods. So you uh, know what? If if we're dealing with a, a retconning here in part seventeen, when Cooper saved Laura, if Laura never died, 
Ben wouldn't have been arrested for her murder and ultimately wouldn't have had his nervous breakdown and wouldn't have turned good and done the whole pine weasel thing. Is that how the Ghostwood prison actually happened then? Well, like, that's the, 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 yeah. That's, that's, that's pre-retcon. That's pre-retcon. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. But, uh, but the, the whole thing... But do you think the prison really disappeared in the retcon? It's probably still there. Well, the prison doesn't exist in the series. It just yeah. it exists in, the, in Mark Frost's book, right? Really? <laughs> yeah, there's no prison in Twin Peaks. I know. I'm just kidding. I'm just oh, okay. I'm, right. I'm considering the whole Frost thing as being a part of the canon. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, light I mean, of it. Oh, okay. Um, but the whole thing with the, the with Jerry, which is interesting, because if you couple that with the scene with Stephen and Gersten in the woods, where they're freaking out, and the woods seem to be alive in that scene, the soundtrack is very ominous, and it just kind of makes me feel like. Those two scenes with those characters are being influenced by this kind of evil in the woods. And it makes me recall that line in the original series where Harry tells Cooper with the other Bookhouse boys that there's always been like a darkness, a presence in those woods, and they've always been there to fight it. And I always kind of took that to mean maybe the Black Lodge, but maybe it's more than that. Maybe it's, uh, you know, more kind of related to Judy and or the woodsmen or other lodge spirits. Yeah, I think the lodge is intrinsically tied to the woods. Oh, that's how you can. There's little portals, obviously, as we know, Jackrabbit's Palace and the Sycamore Trees. There's there's uh, evil in the woods, friend. Well, yeah, and there's a great certainly. there's a great shot in the missing pieces where the above the convenience store scene, right at the end, where you see all the spirits in the convenience store scene. Lynch slowly dissolves, and he dissolves the shot with another shot of the woods, where you're watching it, and it looks like the spirits are fading into the woods and it all it's just that reinforces to me that what we're seeing here even though we didn't get a lot of playtime in the woods that um the spirits some kind of uh machination of spirits are in those woods in twin Peaks still and influencing events and characters like jerry steven and gersten it's true well now here we are with laura's missing letters missing pages from her diary yeah, do you think she? Do you think Carrie Page is the missing fourth page? Do you think that's why they put that in there? No, that's <laughs> interesting. Though. I like that. The word it play. is. It's good. Yeah. Oh, and also Truman says that when uh, Hawk says, "Like read this part," and it was about like I, like Laura's saying he's reading her diary, saying like I know it's not Bob now, and Frank goes. Oh yeah, I remember this Leland. Like it's like he's all like just remembering that, but wasn't like in part three or I think it was part four actually that Hawk had all the evidence from the Laura Palmer case, the files in the conference room yeah. with her picture. Exactly and hazy. Yeah. So is it? Do you think that retconning is? Yeah. Right there. Yeah. Well, this is an interesting episode with that because we have that whole scene at the double R at the end where. The, all the kind of characters, like the the patrons, kind of flip like from one shot to the next, and the soundtrack has this kind of undercurrent playing over the Sleepwalk, a song by Santo and Johnny. So it seems like this is kind of a pivotal episode where maybe some things are slowly starting to change because I really do believe this is the last time in season three that Laura's murder is mentioned at all. I mean, Laura is mentioned at other times, but the murder of Laura Palmer, I think, this is the last time that. Uh, that it's referenced. Yeah. And we should all thank like uh, Hawk for coming up with the whole, you know, he probably puts two pieces together. Like the, the good Cooper's in the lodge. I can't get out. He kind of just gives us the whole <laughs> plot. He knows, he knows what's happening. He's without yeah, him. I, probably no one would know what the fuck's going on. Twin peaks. 
Yeah, he knows the whole thing. That Annie went in, they came out, and Frank. Frank the just good, kind of like it just, was in the lodge. Yeah, good. He was in the lodge. Just kind of matter of factly. Yeah, they went into this you know other world. You know, and uh, you know one of them came out, and it wasn't the good Cooper. And Frank's like, oh, let me just better keep uh, better call Harry and uh, bring him up to speed. And uh, that's where we're at right now. Yeah, it looks like they definitely forgot about the investigation. They erased the uh, Owl Cave map off the chalkboard. <laughs> it's a map. Yeah. Well, this scene with Frank and. Uh, on the phone talking to Harry, if I'm not mistaken, um, Lynch wrote this on the fly. This scene, I recall reading something somewhere, I think an interview with Forrester somewhere, where he said, I think there was this call or maybe all the calls with Harry that Lynch just kind of wrote the the dialogue like on the fly. And it really kind of supports the, the assumption that Harry was in the original script and for one reason or the other, tied to Michael Onkeen not signing up for whatever reason, that they had to act quickly and create the Frank Truman character, but still wanted to keep Harry involved in the plot because it would have been very easy to either A, kill him off, or just not reference him. Well, I guess they would have had to reference him, but they wanted to keep him around. Yeah, it's wild. I mean, to them not to have any really dialogue. Maybe they had bad dialogue, but Lynch didn't like it on the page because like, I maybe. think it was, yeah. you know... The odds aren't slim that they would show up with no dialogue at all. But, uh, yeah, it worked out well. Now here we are. Andy's, like, uh, investigating. He's talking to that <laughs> creepy farmer. He's always been yeah. a poor investigator, Tom. He reminds me of, like, when yeah. he's visiting Shelly in the original series. Hey, Shelly, what's going on? Like, he just is not, he's not good. I wonder how many cases he's actually solved. Oh, there was that great – remember in the pilot before I think they defined the Andy character, like, completely is when Bobby was being interrogated – that Andy says, is there something troubling you, Bobby, you want to tell us about? Like, he was trying to act, like, tough or, like, <laughs> like I mean, just a different kind of, like, uh, interpretation of the Andy, like, being, like, kind of a competent cop at that point, like, reading into Bobby and maybe trying to get him to uh, confess something. But, uh, obviously, I think that character changed. But I like this scene a lot, even though that's the only time we get the, what does this it mean? character. What is it, what's going um, on here in this house with the farmer? What do you think? Well, I always thought it was since we when we got the reference of the farm in the next episode with Ray and Mr. C that since this character was the farmer that <laughs> well, they were going to... Well, Now what do you think it means? <laughs> well, I, I think it was just a thing with that maybe this guy was in cahoots somehow with uh, the red character played by Balthazar Getty and obviously Little Dicky Horn because that was the truck Little Dicky Horn was, was driving and apparently little Dickie Horn left it in his front yard and Andy found it and was interrogating him. And I think he just didn't want to go into it with Andy and convinced him, well, I'll talk to you much later, but flew the coop or something or something bad happened to him because there's that shot later. Remember where the camera slowly goes into that door of his residence and slightly jarred. I think we hear the electricity. Yeah. What's going on? I don't know, my friend. Yeah, that's that's one of those mysteries. Best left unsolved, Tom. Like even the one where like Andy's waiting out for him, watching, looking at his clock. He's, I mean, four thirty is. That, I mean, what's the purpose of even that? I'm just trying to figure out what the plot purpose is. Like, why have those scenes in there? Other well, than I mean, just you, to create confusion. <laughs> well, if there's any number of those scenes in there. Where we have another one at the end of this episode where Beverly, played by Ashley Judd, goes to visit her husband, and really, I mean, oh yeah, that's really like, yeah. What's that all about? It's the only time we ever see him. It's interesting to find out an additional facet of her life, but ultimately it doesn't mean anything. I mean, this I think this story overall was kind of created like a novel. It certainly was written more like a novel than um, a screenplay. 
And I think that all these little asides or whatever are just kind of built, they, they built, Frost and Lynch built it into the, the narrative and that they're little dangling chads, if you will, and they don't necessarily mean anything. It's part of, I think, really, if, if you were to ask Lynch and kind of like corner him, I think he would use the word like the description dream logic. It just fits into the, the whole dream logic of this third season of Twin Peaks. What does it all mean? Who the hell knows? It's part of the dream logic. Well, Sheriff Truman's magic uh, uh, wooden computer is definitely part of Dream Logic. He's well, he's talking to now, uh, <laughs> Dr. Hayward on Skype. Yeah, this Makes was want actually. To eat some eggs. He want to go fish and eat some eggs with Dr. Hayward. Like, but uh, I think about uh, Donna and like what uh, he left his family. I kind of have a little feeling about him now after reading the Frost book that I didn't have before. Like, so also the whole retconning too. Yeah. If Ben Horn, like I was saying earlier, did not have his nervous breakdown, that he wouldn't have turned good and and went on that route of hooking up with trying to hook up with Eileen Hayward and basically admitting that he was the father of Donna that whole plot thread wouldn't have happened probably and the whole downfall of the Haywards wouldn't have happened then because uh, so it's interesting to think Donna about like, still got in trouble she would have gotten maybe she's, not maybe, maybe she would have got on uh, James bike and uh, <laughs> you know they would have hightailed to San Francisco <laughs> they would have both ended up in the Mexican prison <laughs> oh, that was are we just crazy should, act- we maybe, should we maybe not start like keep referencing the Frost book like should we just toss that aside what do you think? Well, well, no, we can it reference it, but I just no, it's not food. But I think when you're we're trying to compare it to what we're watching, I think it is. I mean, it's a, it's an addendum. I think it's interesting, but to tie it into what we've seen is a mistake because that's just Frost's interpretation of it. And I guarantee you, Lynch has his own interpretation of it, and probably would uh, disagree with probably a lot of the things that Frost said. So uh, we'll keep mentioning it then. Make it annoying well, that, that scene, actually, just want to say real briefly before we move on, that scene with, with uh, Doc Hayward, Warren Frost, which is Mark Frost's father, was the very first thing shot for this new season of Twin Peaks. I think Lynch awesome. directed it on Skype. I think Frost, Mark Frost was there with his father helping him, and that was the first thing that they shot because he became ill and, uh, and passed away, I think. I can't remember if it was during production or right after production, but that was the first thing that was shot for season three. Well, Valhalla, Doc Hayward, Warren Frost. I, th- I, th- I actually did not know that that was his father until like this year. You told <laughs> so me. I think was... I'm actually on a podcast. <laughs> it was. He enlightened yeah. me. I was like, oh, <laughs> well, it makes sense now. Well, here we are. Do- Lieutenant Knox is now in Buckhorn. Yeah, so she she is just assuming that that they lifted Major Briggs' prints. Now, uh, uh, Detective Mackley doesn't know that it's Major Briggs, but she's assuming that it was from a crime scene. And the big revelation is, no, there's a body. Oh, there's a body. There's a body, all right. Which is the name of this this part. But um, so which leads Lieutenant Knox to go and check out the body, which we're watching right now. And what I'm thinking of is that the whole mystery of those 16 crime scenes with Briggs, one of the things that's kind of interesting to note is that if he was doing some time traveling himself, because obviously he had to, to give Bobby ultimately that clue to show up at Jack Rabbit's palace in the future. He had to do some time traveling. So if he was doing that, what kind of effects are having uh, that, that that time traveling is having on like other characters and, and, and what have you, maybe the blue rose task force. So all this, like it's slippery in here. All these things could really, uh, the, the lack of like remembrances and memories could be for not just Cooper going back in time, but Jeffrey's going back in time and Briggs going back in time. Yeah, do you think the paradox, like, uh, whatever uh, applies for every time-traveling moment? Like, every time, like, uh, you know, Briggs goes back in time and, you know, moves, like, a, a car across the street. Like, something happens. Like, he could change reality every time. Do you yeah. think that that's happening all over the place? Well, no I mean, that's 
No wonder that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. yeah, it's because especially with the brakes, because that's the one real big nut that I've been trying to crack is like, A, how did he get Dougie's wedding ring in his stomach? And B, why was his, why were his fingerprints at all those different crime scenes? And uh, we got no real um, uh, information to even kind of speculate. Really, it's just so very mysterious. But um, I, I think it's, it's tied to Mr. C. I think that there's been this cat and mouse game with Major Briggs and Mr. C probably going on for these 25 years. And that's why Briggs' uh, prints were showing up at these crime scenes. They could very well have been crime scenes related to Mr. C. And he was hoping maybe by his, crime, his fingerprints showing up there that it would eventually lead someone to putting it together and with Mr. C. So, Well, here's the scene. The wood's been in the hallway coming at her she's on the yeah, phone yeah no so yeah i think this could really be tied into so it's great it's interesting that you only see the woodsman appear when she says his head is missing that's the first glimpse that we we get which is tied into i think briggs's head obviously ascending or disappearing within the zone and also uh bill hastings head basically basically getting eaten by or destroyed by one of the woodsmen and a uh, future part yeah she turns and look she makes like she completely clocks him so she does see him i would say yeah, but yeah, she kind of walks away. I think it's more kind of. No, she's sense. just going to get away from this guy. She just thinks he's the local creepy guy. So you away. think she did see him? She, I, I would say yes, with all certainty, she saw him. But she also him. passes yeah. here in a little bit, and she does not. You would think that she would kind of glance, maybe that way. Well, I think she felt like uh, maybe a little bit scared by herself out there, but with, there with the gang, that she would feel more safe, you know. And so she wasn't as scared. She didn't have to. Well, because who? Then she would she be was, the only yeah. person to have seen a woodsman, because that whole zone scene. Or no, they did see them. The Cole and Albert saw them, right? Cause yeah, and didn't Diane. They see, yeah, did they see? Did but did they? Cole Dirty saw, bearded men. They all saw them. Well, no, he saw them in the zone. So, but did they see the dirty bearded men? Like, kind of. Well, we know Diane did because I always thought Diane blew, blew her smoke and blew that one away. So Diane for certain did. I don't know about the rest. Okay. Okay. All right. Here's a uh, Lynch well, this doing is his Cole. whistle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a great With, scene. It's a great, just a great Kafka moment. corn and, and a bomb, friend. It's all you need. All you need. It, it all kind of ties together, right? The the, the Kafka metamorphosis with the bug, the, obviously the nuclear uh, bomb tied into part eight, and the ear of corn tied in with Garmin Bezia right there in Cole's office. That's it. It's all you need. Those are like the three fundamental elements of Twin Peaks in the lodge, <laughs> other than fire. Right. Which is in, within the lodge. Yeah. yeah. Sparkle. Yeah. This is a good scene with Albert, I thought. And I love the little, that the last bit where Albert says, say please, and yeah. Cole says, what? And he goes, you heard me, and he did. Long, I mean, the long the, pause, he goes, please. Yeah, right. <laughs> good. Yeah, this is really good. Yeah, this episode, I mean, it flies, certainly compared to part six, where you know, I think when you have, obviously, a lot of longer scenes play out, um, which we have certainly a lot of them in this third season, but there were a lot in part six, um, it, it could feel like uh, that we're watching kind of this, this endless stream like of, of, of scenes that, that go on and on and on. But here we are in part seven, and it just seems like, I mean, there's so much going on in this episode. Um, already we're like, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes into it, but we've had like four or five different locations, um, and it's moving, and it continues to move. Like, as I remember watching, like, the Diane scene here, this intro of Diane going, like, okay, we're going to meet Diane, and then we'll probably not come back to her again to like, part nine, because that's what I was kind of getting watching this season. Like, remember we saw Becky in part five? Yeah. And I don't Pop think in. we've 
return to her yet but we get subsequent scenes like on the plane and the interrogation we didn't know Diane's in the whole damn thing essentially like until she her head blows up she disappears well no (laughs) no I'm just talking about like you know how they were kind of like parsing out like the scenes Oh yeah, yeah, some of these characters. Well, but she joins up with the main with with Cole, the gang. That's why she's in every scene. She's, I mean, isn't she in pretty much every episode? Not probably. Well, after episode. this moment, yeah, yeah, yeah this. right. Well, I mean, she was in the last episode, but uh, yeah, this is a great uh, scene. Obviously, we're getting to really get into the dying character and the whole classic "fuck you," which is kind of uh, her retort to just about everything. But I love the persistence and kind of the folksy charm of Cole, and they're playing kind of like a. Like kind of, I'm not saying a Laurel and Hardy thing, but like this kind of like straight man and sidekick to kind of convince Diane to go with them to see Cooper. But I want to throw this to you. Um, do you think that they already suspect, knowing what we know, do you think they already suspect perhaps that there's something a little bit off about Diane? You would think they would, but probably not because they don't do a great job, I would think. <laughs> well, I, I say that because with... Uh, with uh, the the whole thing of like meeting Cooper and okay, there's something wrong with Cooper, but we need to bring in Diane just to make sure. Just that really just doesn't seem completely like logical that before we take our next step, which we still didn't know, don't know what that would have been because they've st- stayed in Buckhorn for like eight future episodes. Why did they have to bring Diane to kind of just confirm that and then really kind of not do anything with that? They didn't send out a dragnet after Mr. C uh, pretty much escaped, wouldn't escape, but they didn't help. I would think they did just off camera, the dragnet. Yeah, but you think there would be some kind of... But it's just... But I felt like the whole Diane thing, like when they said, you know, basically whatever episode that was, like, you know, we got to go find her. Like, she'll know, essentially, that that implied that they were, like, so close that she was the only person in the world that would know who the real Coop was because that she was good and that they didn't have any inkling that she had turned bad. But Yeah, but don't you think Cole and Albert spent, like, a lot of time You think they would follow her. Yeah, you think they would, like, actually keep up with her as well. It kind of was a bad ending. Uh, they would kind of keep tabs on her to see what's going on, but maybe they haven't. Maybe the the budget went dry. They're spending too much money on Bordeaux and private planes. <laughs> Do you think her attire, like this kind of Asian or seemingly Asian um, kind of motif that we have, not only uh, oh yeah, Nido, yeah, her house yeah, because yeah. is somehow like yeah. kind of kind yeah. of foreshadowing perhaps. Uh, Okay. Of course. Did you do you kind of believe? Did you ever like any- the? Did, you, did anybody ever play the flute? Those little signs on the, the private plane. <laughs> that They're was what I was gonna. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna ask you that. <laughs> do you think song. there's anything with that, like Morse code or anything? Well, I think it's Wyndham Earl's little flute song from parts from season two. <laughs> Isn't it? I, I Earl's driving I, the plane, friend. It's Earl. <laughs> Always Earl. You know what's interesting about Earl is that you know I, I suspect that Lynch really. It, you know, wouldn't even want Earl mentioned in the the story meetings, but Frost would be maybe pounding the table because you know Earl was kind of his creation. But if you think about it, there's these little subtleties of Earl with the bonsai tree that was seen in the uh, the room with the glass box, and obviously Mr. C's briefcase in part two was very similar to Wyndham Earl's like uh, Comsat yeah. or whatever briefcase. And uh, it's interesting to think that maybe that was Frost somehow influencing, like you know, kind of the uh, the the the, the Earl character somehow into this narrative. Because even when uh, they were mentioning the the Blue Rose Task Force, I know Earl wasn't a part of it, but there was a reference to Chet Desmond, uh, but never a mention of of Wyndham Earl. Well, yeah. Back to the Frost book. Didn't this impossible that like Leo was shot by Mr. C and he stole the the case? Yeah. No. Yeah. I think that's. I think that is. 
Uh, if we take that part of Frost's book, that was certainly what he was insinuating and going towards, in my opinion. There was little clues about the FBI stance, how he was shot and everything, and obviously it was after the events of the, the, the Black Lodge. So I think that very well could be, and that's how he got uh, uh, Earl's hardware and whatever. And it might not be the same one, but it certainly looked similar. It does. So now he's displaying the era of finger to Tammy on the plane. That was very yeah, I love that. That's see Cole there. picked that up the era, but they have no. What does idea. he say? Like chew on that. Like what does he say? Like <laughs> at the end of that thing. You've like, been doing good work, Tammy, and then uh, like you think about that. Yeah. I, I can't remember exactly what he <laughs> There's said. There's Mister C's but, uh, like <laughs> Brazilian like <laughs> postcard. That's so awesome. Mind I love that. Yeah. But the shots of Diane now, in retrospect, she's overhearing this conversation. She knows about Mister C. I don't think that she knows what he represents. Basically, Cooper's doppelganger being the host of Bob. But she knows more of what was going on after Cooper disappeared just by you know those shots. Uh, but still, this interrogation scene that we're getting here, I watched it again before we recorded. And uh, that's a damn fine acting job by uh, not only Lord really Gurn, but the character of Diane. Yeah having to know that Cole and company are listening in to convince them that, you know, this is the first time she's actually seen him and that she is one of his victims, even though we don't know the depth of that at that point. But I think this is one of the highlights, not only of this episode, but of the entire season, both interrogation scenes with Mr. C, that voice is still so haunting. your house. It's freakish. It's great. Yeah. She's a, and so really what she is, is she's not even Diane. She's a Tulpa Diane who's slowly having like memories of what she once used to be. And the real ty- Diane is either night up in the, in the, the space capsule or she's trapped in like the convenience store somewhere. Right. Right. This is, I, you made the mention um, before that you would have liked possibly if they would have incorporated this the voice. voice yes the whole time yeah. is had that be mr c's voice because it's just terrifying and it's it even is. it's almost like kyle like goes into a different like mode like uh and it's really it's not really any mode because all they're doing is slowing down the perform- i mean you know what i'm saying do you think he actually spoke kyle spoke lower in these scenes or is just lynch like modifying the sound in post yeah, I think it was. I think it was modified, but yeah, uh, so he's not, I, I agree with it you. Seems I he's think more serious. He's scarier. I think with that. Voice. Well, just the look. Look at him. Uh, the, the look of Mister C in these scenes, in these interrogation scenes, I think is uh, are the most more most terrifying scenes of Mister C throughout every scene. These two moments here with that Diane and the one in part four with uh, with uh, uh, Tammy Cole, Cole and, and Albert. This is where he terrified me. And I think right after that was that scene with Jack where he was massaging his face. Those were the terrifying moments of Mr. C. I wish there was a little bit more of that um, uh, because the character of... Less Judy Cash, you know, Sailor Ripley, or this guy. <laughs> we have the great Dale Cooper, <laughs> this, this great intuitive, intellectual, spiritual uh, uh, detective, his doppelganger, uh, it, basically with Bob and the the possibilities and you know we, we got a lot of Mr. C and, and a lot, I mean, don't get me wrong I love it but really um, there's nothing as terrifying as seeing Frank Silva in the original series other than these scenes with Mr. C in uh, being interrogated by yeah Diana the close ups and she's like who are you and he gives her that look kind of turn like it's just dead eye it's like really yeah. like it's a different it's a different level of Mr. C evil and it's very prescient. Yeah. Like, all this happened before the Me Too movement for the Harvey Weinstein thing. Like, this is, like, predicting it. Like, the, all this shit that was 
was horrifying all of us seeing it like the way the mistreatment of women in twin peaks is all just like become reality you know it was already ready reality but uh yeah. right throwing audrey as well i mean yeah. um we had that earlier with doc hayward mentioning that you know last time he saw cooper was coming out of the icu and what we find out about audrey so he you know mr c violated her. i couldn't believe that i didn't think i remember watching the series i didn't think that uh, yeah, you were gonna, up, yeah, you fought that. I, I, you and I can argue about that. Yeah, <laughs> you were right, spot on. I didn't think it was just. It seemed like kind of too easy. But well, you're right about I, the Bob Bubble, Tom. Where were you? Aren't you? Wasn't there a whole Bob? It's bubble? not a question about being right or wrong. <laughs> it just, it just felt, it felt wrong to kind of incorporate that into the narrative. But I, I now that you know, uh, I've seen all 18 episodes and I can reflect on it. It makes sense, and, and it, like you were saying, I mean, it's 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 very pressing. I don't know if that was the intention on Lynch and Frost's part, but um, it, it's not necessarily that that I want to agree with it or not. It's it's part of it of, of obviously the narrative, um, but it really, if you think about the characters of both Diane and Audrey, these two characters, we don't have the Laura abuse incest angle, even though that is you know that hovers around everything if, if you've watched all the iterations of Twin Peaks but having that facet of Audrey and Diane being raped violated uh, by Mr. C and and what what you know happens to both of these characters even though we don't get a lot of, of scenes with Audrey it just resonates and makes you ponder and think um, of what you know what what happened what could be and, and and what might happen in the future yeah, it's crazy, like, watching this retrospect. It's a great, you know, her reaching out to Cole here and talking about, like, what's missing is right here. And you're just like, oh, my God. Like, you're just so feeling for her. And he doesn't hug her. And you're like, what the fuck? And then now you realize later why. It's a little turn of events here. It's a quite a complex scene. Yeah, he's picking up on a yeah, vibe, is. whatever, is that she is putting on a performance. Um, I but is she? Didn't... I don't think she's putting on a performance. She's really remembering it, I think. Well, but she's obviously, like, it, she's putting, I mean... She's obviously being, I would think, like genuine, seemingly genuine, but when she actually, with her words, but when she makes contact with Cole, he doesn't feel it. It doesn't, it doesn't match with what she's telling him because of what he says, like you said earlier, that I felt it when she hugged me, that there was something odd about it. It wasn't, it wasn't right. So she was performing, in essence, um, and this was, I, I'm not saying it was a plan all along of Mr. C and Diane to get her with the Blue Rose Task Force so she can ultimately get him the coordinates. But I think now that she has been put in the, in, in the fold and she had the scene with Mr. C and everything related to him, like kind of creating her tulpa or being a part of that, she is now under his kind of control, under his guise. But I, I think she fights it. Uh, because I don't think she is the she's not the embodiment of like pure evil. I think Diane was a a good person, just like Cooper and and the Dougie Tulpa um, is retains some of the Cooper DNA. It's not all evil, but just uh, is easily manipulated. I would say. Yeah, I wonder if like she didn't even realize what was happening until it all the, all the memories started coming through to her. You know what I mean? Like I don't necessarily think that she was like a, an active participant in this like scheme with Mr. C. That she was more like this latent sleeper cell that got awakened. You know, yeah. and all of her past came into her like consciousness, and everything just came flashing back. It had been blocked off. 
even though you wouldn't think like Mr. C would have just let her go in the world. <laughs> She'd be like still like, you know, like a Manchurian candidate that could be activated for purposes. But um, <laughs> right. I don't know. I feel empathy. I, feel, I guess her performance is so genuine. I feel like that she, especially in 16, or I guess it was that the one she, she dies. But, uh, yeah. and th- that hard, you know, when she gets the all, the all, uh, you know, text, it's like, it's coming back to her, you know? And I think it maybe comes back in waves throughout the series. Um, yeah. And obviously there's something connecting her to NATO, in part 16, where she says, I'm at the sheriff's station. So if, you know, we have a whole thing with, with NATO and the possible Judy thing, it's all very convoluted or whatever. But obviously what Lynch want, is painting on the surface is that Diane, the NATO that we're seeing in part three, is actually the real Diane, who is, exists on another plane in that purple room. So how is that presence affecting the Tulpa Diane, or is it affecting the Tulpa Diane at all? That's something to, to ponder yeah. as well. I don't know whether it's even true or not. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, we're alive. not going to go there with that. Well, here now, we are, the Mr. But, Strawberry uh, scene. Here we go. Yeah, very good scene. He turned the camera off. He pulls a gun on uh, on Mr. C, and uh, Mr. C's in control. Like he, This whole thing had to have been, obviously, a setup. The dog leg, the cocaine, and the machine gun had to have been a setup to get put in this prison for the sole purpose of the, for this scene to blackmail Warden Murphy and to get Raymond Rowe so he could get the information that he needs related to the coordinates, right? Yeah, so Mr. Strawberry is his dog, you think? His golden retriever? I don't know. I mean, I, I think it is, <laughs> but it could be a person. Who's Joe McCluskey? That's, that's the, <laughs> the linchpin of this whole thing. It's like no Joe idea. McCluskey. Yeah. But oh, one thing I wanted to throw at you, okay? So this whole narrative, Mr. C's been looking for these coordinates, right? And... Uh, you know, we know what he wants. It's on the playing card. It's related to, you know, the experiment, you know, the, the image on the symbol on Hawk's living map and on Briggs's note. What if, though, the actual coordinates, like he goes to the location near Jackrabbit's palace, but what if the coordinates that he actually is looking for are the coordinates of the 430 that Cooper and Diane go into in part 18? Because that seems to be more kind of like Judy world where you would be able to find Judy. And maybe that was the whole thing is that all of these coordinates were a ruse to get Mr. C trapped and ultimately like destroyed. But what he really is looking for coordinates is to that timeline or dream world, whatever you want to call it in part 18 that Cooper and Diane entered where they find Carrie Page. Uh, yeah, to the Palmer house in that timeline. Or to, yeah, that's because that's what the giant... Possibly, sw- yes, yeah, exactly. Sw- he swipes away on his little surveillance screen. So, yeah. Right, but if you look at that Palmer house, if I'm not mistaken, I'll have to go back, but there are two exteriors of the Palmer house. There's an exterior that is more dilapidated where Sarah lives, and there's an exterior where it's the uh, is, is, is kept. It looks much nicer as where Alice Tremont lives. And I believe that the exterior that we saw in the fireman's mansion in part 17 is more of the, 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 the well tended, the kept, the, the nicer exterior, the Tremont house. So it would make sense that that would be the part 18 through the four, three, zero, perhaps that he's not, he was not trying to unite with Sarah Palmer, but trying to get into the Judy world in part 18. Yeah. Yeah. So like he would have like Mrs. Tremont, when she opened that door, she was expecting to see Mr. C. Yeah. We should have had a better reception. You kind of look like, so, yeah. Possibly, yeah. Because yeah. we think that that's uh, somehow related to the convenience store, right? Do you think if Mr. House? C had showed up in that different portal timeline and got to the front door, he would have had uh, real Laura Palmer with him? Or would it be Carrie Page? 
Or he'd be by himself. Ooh, that's interesting. Well, don't you think, though, if Mr. C was the one showing up on the doorstep of Part 18, that he would not have turned around? He would have Yeah, he'd kick the door. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, but that's something I think that we're going to ponder in the future. That was something that I just kind of just popped into my head recently is that the whole mystery of the coordinates um, just going back this full circle of coming out of the Black Lodge in 1989 as the doppelganger of Cooper and then 25 years later what he really wants he pretty much comes full circle almost to the same location it's a different portal it goes to the White Lodge but it doesn't make sense that he's going to go into the White Lodge what's the purpose like all alone it just seems like he wants to go into you would think to this reality this the, the Judy's dimension house, right? Judy. exactly yeah. eat at Judy's get some coffee and wind up at the uh, the Tremont house. Yeah, if he had stepped into the Tremont house through the threshold, actually crossed the threshold, then he probably would have like been, ended up back in the convenience store or somewhere else. There's, he wouldn't have actually. It would have been just like a key or doorway into something else, another reality. Possibly, yeah. I think that that could have very well have been another reality dimension portal because I think it's tied into the convenience store. Yeah, that um, scene, the Eat at Judy scene when he was wielding the gun around, that kind of was Mister C ish when he was when Coop was brandishing it. Maybe that was well. Yeah, Mr. C if you was watch, destined to be there doing that. Yeah, if you watch that whole thing, once Mr. C, or once Cooper enters like Odessa, like once he leaves the the motel room in Part 18 with Diane, or after Diane leaves, like he is very suspicious. I mean, he's obviously uncertain and he's acting, you know, vacillating kind of between Cooper and Mr. C, but he is very suspicious. Like throughout the whole entire run of that of that episode, even with Laura and the Tremont, like he, I think he knows that he is in this maybe Judy world. And he doesn't know what he's going to see. Like, there's danger everywhere. And I think he's kind of, whether he's conscious or not, he feels it. He senses it. Because it certainly plays out, you know, in his, with his reactions. Yeah, when in Rome, when in Judy land, you must you know, scare some people. <laughs> some this is a good scene. We're in... Uh, as, well, this is the first time we yeah. see Cooper as... Doug, or Dougie as... Well, Cooper. Call him Dougie. Cooper, whatever. In... Uh, and the Lucky Seven in this episode, and this is great scene with the before with the Tom Sizemore character. Just you could tell he's already suspicious, right? Because he said, "What, what were you doing with those uh, files with like Bushnell?" What yeah, and he was he was, he's just not responding. He's just drawing on the you know, paper, scribbling. He just oh, so you're giving me the hi hat? Okay, right. that's, <laughs> right. what that is. that's He be. wasn't even drawing on the paper. He, he was, was drawing like on yeah. the missing the little it. scratch pad part. <laughs> yeah. I wonder how I mean, it's been like at least five or six, maybe ten minutes of just him scribbling in the series. Yeah. Well, certainly in the uh, part uh, six, the last episode. one on YouTube, just him scribbling, just Dougie scribbling <laughs> in the loop. But I love this scene. This was like when Janie E, when she's actually waiting outside, and you could tell that, you know, Dougie's not going to, Cooper's not going to come out, and she's going to have to go in. That kind of like that march that she does, you know, yeah, when she, she walked up to those yeah. two. She's just, the, the determination and that kind of that Janie, Janie E, like anger or determination. I really liked her character, and I liked how she dominated the scene with, with the cops and uh, I, I, you know, <laughs> I like her previously was, owned car uh, comment. That's funny, right? Yeah, but uh, this is a this is a very uh, a good scene with the detectives Fusco and obviously watching the extras of the the Blu-ray set that it was supposed to only be two detectives and Lynch liked this the the detective in the background smile I think he called him Smiley Fusco um, and just happy uh, yeah he's just yeah well, he's guy. got a good laugh I think yeah. Lynch liked his laugh yeah. yeah. That's good. Well, they're all just dream figments anyway, so. <laughs> right. Okay, this is the one thing, though, right? If, if it is a dream, and I agree with you, but Ike the Spike was hired by Duncan Todd, presumably from Mr. C, to kill Cooper. And 
we see that happen here shortly. But we never so see like Mr. C actually talk to them, like actually hire them. Yeah. We never no, see I'm with you. I'm just, but happening. there are things where, I mean, just like, that's why I don't think there's ever going to be one definitive answer. Like someone's going to have this PowerPoint presentation of like, this is what <laughs> Yeah, those points where they cross, the streams are crossed, yeah, to where it doesn't work. Yeah, so, <laughs> right. we get that. There are just anything, like if anything, anyone comes up with any great theory or whatever, and, and there have been a lot of them, and a lot of them have been valid, but there's also like a counter to it. And I think that it's just built into the narrative, like these kind of uh, contradictions. And like I was saying earlier, like kind of the dream logic, but, yeah, it's uh, a choose your but I'm right there with you. Yeah. A, B, C, yeah, you all the way down. You can choose whatever you want, <laughs> however you want to interpret it. It's up to you. Boy, this is a long scene. It's been like going on for like 10 minutes. <laughs> it's Lucky 7, right? Lucky yeah. 7. It's, all these Lucky 7 scenes are, uh, are long. Yeah. Let, it play, let it play full. Whole goddamn reel. Yeah, but it's, it's got a great payoff. I thought that uh, – I certainly wasn't expecting it, right? Um, oh, the Cobra the, Cooper coming up here, you mean? Yeah. yeah. So what do you think great. that I was? Think I think Yeah, I was like very excited. Do you think that was instinct on his part, or do you think it was either the evolution of the arm since we saw it saying squeeze his hand, or Mike somehow flipping a switch within him to like, yeah. all right, you're about to get killed, or your wife, you know? So what do you think it was? I think it's just his dream. He's slowly waking up from this dream, like a little bit by a little bit throughout the series. He starts to realize who he really is, that he's not really Dougie Jones going through this uh, Las Vegas dream reality that he pops out of it here in a second. It's just like, uh, yeah, it's, it's like, it's like, uh, you know, uh, total recall, like Schwarzenegger. He wanted to, I want to be double O seven. Like he's, he likes to have the intrigue in his dream. And so all this stuff is just intrigue shit. He's enjoying, he's, he's, he's a fucking FBI agent. He's got to have people coming after him and stuff. And, uh, he rises up and he shows, his watch him stream. right. Yeah. Here he goes. Watch him right before. He's like kind of like mumbling, but all of a sudden he senses, obviously Ike the spike and he just, turns into basically Cooper, even though he doesn't talk. So you watch him like mumble here. Do you see that? Well, you're a little ahead of me, but yeah. Oh yeah. He's, oh, mumbling, right? <laughs> he's mumbling. Yeah. He's mumbling to himself. And then all of a sudden they push her out, take control. You know, just <laughs> there it is. look at, oh, he's yeah. just Cooper. It's and, good. Uh, right to the neck. <laughs> karate chop. The old, the good old karate chop. I think is Janie recalls it on an interview. Remember? I like oh, that. that's right. Yeah. The cra- Yeah. And Yo, then so the what's evolution. With a little, yeah. What's with a little squeeze his arm off thing? What, what is, what do you think? Well, I think that what that was, since it's they seem to have all the events, whether they are the uh, the omniscient uh, force with Cooper's Choose Your Own Adventure here, um, that they know that if he squeezes his hand off, that his his fingerprints will be found, basically, which makes sense. Like, doesn't really make sense because I think they would get his prints off the gun anyways. But they find out that it's Ike despite the cops, and then he's thwarted, so he no longer can go back and kill Cooper. I mean, that's the only thing that I can think of, yeah. right? Yeah. I still I see the, it's I a still great see, visual. I personally still see a one-armed man in the background with the white hair. No, I watched it again. It looks like... I'm still looking at it. He looks... Yeah. You never see the other hand, though. You it, never it, see the I, I, You might have something yeah. there. Yeah. Got something there. It, wouldn't that be great, though? Yeah. I mean... I think it is. Awesome. Like another incarnation of the one-armed man. I think that would be implied that the, he probably was the one that kind of woke him up there. That he's trying to help him out. He's trying to yeah, get him out well, of this Judy dream. They both are, yeah. Because um, he went to the wrong fucking socket. Hey, when do you think that scene with the firemen in season one, the very first episode, if you had to put money on where does it take place in the entire narrative? I mean, it could take place. I know where it takes place. It takes place place place? right at the beginning. (laughs) So you think it's chronological. You think it's. Yeah, of course it is. We saw it. That's how it happens. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is okay. I'm sorry. This is bar none. One of my favorite scenes. Yeah, it's magical and mystical, and it's the Great Northern. It's nighttime. It's like the old classic series, and the hum is just beautiful, and I love this scene too. 
I aptly uh, described, I feel exactly the same way. It, it mirrors or makes me think of the original series. And also the, uh, the, the cinematography. It yeah. just, it looks and feels like uh, you know, kind of the Twin Peaks and everything about it. Like that office really just evokes 1989 and this whole slow scene of Ben and Beverly trying to find the source of this hum, but there's also an undercurrent of a flirtation going on. So the ambiance, the cinematography, the direction, the acting, the obviously the sound design, um, and the nostalgia for me, love this scene. One of my favorites in the entire run. Yes, yeah, so do you think it's Audrey? That Audrey's trying to come out? <laughs> do you think there's a connection Audrey between and Beverly and Audrey? Yeah, you were talking about that. Beverly, Beverly could be some sort of Audrey... The but last time we see her really is sense. in part 12. Yeah, I mean, I don't the first really time we see her is in part 12. Audrey, see Audrey's in part 12. Yeah, I don't and think she's so. married to a bald man. Uh, they're both married to bald men. Um, you know, something with that. You know, I don't know. There might be a connection. I'm well, not maybe, maybe Lynch wrote person. that character and it was Audrey was supposed to be that was supposed to be Beverly, but then they changed it because <laughs> they weren't sure she's going to be in the show. <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> Not his assistant. She would have never have been his assistant. He's a sidekick. Right? Basically, basically, basically what she was at the end of season two. She yeah, was becoming true. his number two. Yeah, that's true. Jerry was going to go off and that was it. And then she was going to take over. Well, what do you think? The hum, obviously, in the furnace room is related portal, to Tom, that portal. That. Yes, it's a big portal. So, and then she said that it it started, they started to hear it like about a, like, like a previous, like the week before. So probably several days, probably right around the time that Cooper. Went through the, yeah. Yes. The written so, key manifested. Yeah, right. Oh, that was one other thing I was going to say with the pin thing in part three is that when he goes through the the portal number three, he loses his shoes and he loses his pin. But he gains he the, key. the key. Did he have no, the key? We, oh, he had the key the whole time. He had to have the key. Yeah, he yeah. had to have the key, right? And he had to have his gun too because he had his gun in part 18. But we never saw Cooper with his gun. But he has his gun in part 18. But anyway, he has that key. So... When um, he sees the American girl and she says, when you get there, you'll already be there. He already possesses that key at that point. So on one kind of track, the dream track, if you will, he gets the key from Truman to go into that portal. But on maybe another track, maybe the dreamer track, he already has it and he is either already there or he goes there directly or what have you. He doesn't need that. I mean, it's the dream logic, but it makes sense. Yeah, I love it. I love the key angle. It's very nice. Oh, and also the three and the 15. So the two portals in that room yeah. are three and 15. The key is 315. Dude, we're starting to see it. I think we've already seen it. The I'm going to get my PowerPoint presentation drawn up by Thursday. It just seems weird that the FBI pin is the only thing that goes stray. Like the gun, the key, that stays, but the pin doesn't stay. I think that was deliberate. I think that that is the real subtle clue, I think, from Lynch. And I know that Frost kind of poo-pooed it, but... What if that was kind of deliberate? I mean, instead of him saying like, oh, yes, pay very careful attention to that. I think it's a very subtle, it's a subtlety that Lynch put in there of like kind of denoting either, you know, which Cooper we're seeing or where we're seeing Cooper. Or if you want to go with like, you know, the Black Lodge world as opposed to the real world or the dream world or what have you, that the pin is kind of a, a signifier of some sorts. I just don't think it, because it appears and disappears or there's long sections where it doesn't, you know, where he doesn't have it and then he has it again. I think it's deliberate that, you know, Lynch knows where we are in the story and the Cooper, whatever version we're seeing either has the pin or doesn't. 
Yep, I will we'll agree to disagree on that. I'm not really sure I agree with the, the pin theory, but uh, that's so you don't think you'll ever come around uh, yeah. to the old pin thing? Well, maybe. Maybe if Liz, if Liz <laughs> talks about it, yes, it was true. If he's going to be cagey about it, then probably not <laughs> ever. <laughs> oh, okay. One thing I want to ask you here as well is that uh, do you remember? Uh, of course, you remember, but in part seventeen, where Cooper and the one-armed man see Jeffries, and um, you know. Cooper says, you know, gives him the date, February 23rd, 1989, and Jeffries is looking uh, looking it up for him. And then Jeffries says, did you ask me this? Yeah. Like he was kind of confused. And then he says, this is where you'll find Judy. It seems like, and I, I, I'm, I watched the, the episode again recently, and uh, you're just picking up on certain things, you know, because Mr. C had visited... Uh, Jeffrey's in part 15. Do you think that he is confusing or somehow amalgamating the two Coopers with what they were asking and is kind of confused at that point? Because Cooper in part 17 didn't ask about Judy. It's just Jeffrey's offered him, this is where you'll find Judy. Because the, I mean, if, if that was the case of like Cooper saying, giving him a date and saying, uh, and Jeffrey's going like, okay, this is where you'll find Judy. You would think that it's related to, to Laura somehow because that's what his intent is. But I don't think that is that intent is. What if what Jeffries is doing is he's kind of being confused about the two Coopers. What Mr. C wanted in part 15 were coordinates and to know about Judy. And he obviously kind of like uh, uh, derailed that conversation but winds up offering that information to Cooper so what I'm saying is in a long about kind of way is that this is where you'll find Judy what he tells Cooper and the one armed man basically is what Mr. C was asking and that whole eight that figure eight that that you saw whatever was the information that maybe Mr. C wanted but he did not show him uh, it's possible. Did any but, of that make any sense? <laughs> well, I would think that, like, you know, maybe Philip Jeffries is old, so he's been flying around time. So it's just like when he goes, like, did you mean this? Like, he's just kind of like Yoda scrabbling around in his old, like, files, and he's pulling things out. And he doesn't necessarily – because he goes, like, good to see you again, Koopa. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so he clearly yeah. knows that this is the real guy and the other one wasn't. I think that's that's pretty – can be validated. But, but do you um, think that there might be some aspects of – Slipperiness in yeah. there with his memory, perhaps. Yeah, he's got space um, dementia. He's old as shit. Yeah. He didn't know what the hell was going on 25 years ago. That's just the one thing, really, the whole thing of like, this is where <laughs> you'll find Judy. Because, I mean, if we know what that entails, then I think that's. Well, a I think big it goes back to the piece. two birds with one stone, right? Maybe that was, it was tying back into that. Like, this is where you'll find her. Because he knew that that was his mission. That's why he's there. You mean the. Stone. When they crossed over, basically, yeah. in part 18. It's related to that. Yeah. Okay. I think maybe. What did you think when we saw the uh, the three minute sweeping scene for the? first I'm watching time? it now, and I think he missed a spot. But sure, he got them all. <laughs> yeah. Right, I find it uh, completely I it. entrancing. Yeah, I now, it. I, I just. You think, were you I'm angry even, when you first saw it? Were you like pissed? I, I I was I was I wouldn't say pissed, but when I saw anytime I saw the Roadhouse, I would feel disappointed because I felt like there was a strong possibility the episode would be over. And while I was watching it. I was like, okay, I, I noticed Walter Okowitz in the background. I was like, okay, we were going to get a scene with him. Great. But the sweeping continued and continued, and I knew we were towards the end of the episode. I was becoming frustrated. Uh, <laughs> but then at some point, it became just, like, absurd. And I think I started laughing. And now on subsequent viewings, I love it. I, I, I only focus on him sweeping. I'm, like, entranced by the sweeping. It's just – it's uh, – I don't know. It's like it's, it reminds me of like a Boonwell scene. I love Louis Boonwell and 
um, some of these long takes and then the kind of this nonsensical action within a static shot. And I just find it very hypnotizing. Well, not very practical. You would have a much larger broom, I think, if you had that duty. And what is he doing? I thought they were peanut shells or cigarettes, but what the hell is actually he sweeping up? What is that refuse? Now it looks kind of like bone fragments and like evidence <laughs> that like Jock was burning in the back. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, I think cigarettes, the peanut shells, peanut shells. It doesn't look at all. If he had a bigger broom, he would not be able to sweep under the stools, the bar stools. Well, like, he's got the right. Uh, he's, he's got to. He right didn't tool. pull them all out anyway. He's got to pull them all out at some point. He pulled one they out, out a little the floor, bit, right? Like they probably don't off the floor every night, but uh, yeah, well. Let's get his little flourish with the. Uh, he's at the very. He's very proud of himself. He does a little swing. Yeah, he is. Guy. Yeah, and cool. the uh, the appearance of obviously Walter Okowitz, who played Jean or Jacques Renault, and he's playing a new character, Jean Michel. But really, I think it was a stroke of genius uh, on Lynch's part with everything that we know about it, and especially with this episode, maybe being kind of the uh, maybe a turning point of where events are slowly starting to. Uh, change and memories are starting to get fuzzy because of the ultimate retconning that here we do we have Jacques who is like you know tied to Laura Palmer so closely because of being with her the last night that she died and Leland killing her just the appearance of him and you know the questioning of like why him and, and you know I know he's listed as Jean-Michel in, in, in the credits but it's just I, th- I think it's it, it fits in perfectly like thematically um, with what's going on here in season three yeah, no matter what you call him, he's still a scumbag. <laughs> yeah, he's pulling. It's like he really is like Jacques. He's fated he's like to a be pimp, a scumbag right? in any yeah, any reality. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yeah, that's uh, he's a nice gentleman, great. Walker Ultimate. In real life, he's a nice uh, actor. I think he need, like he needed some work or something. He was having health problems, and Lynch threw him into the, into the cast. Is that right? He's got a very bad like either leg or knee. In fact, there's this behind the scenes shot of him but during this scene, like his leg is propped up. Um, and you can see like a bandage. I think he's had like a lot of surgeries and he's just, you know, had a lot of medical issues with that. But uh, I'm glad he was able to come back. I mean, it was just one scene really that he had. He was, you know, briefly in part two, but um, it just evoked Firewalk with me, you know, where he's behind the bar of the roadhouse. And, you know, whether you're calling about a drug deal like Bobby was or you're calling about like some straight A horrors, you know, Jacques or Jean Michel is your man. Yeah, you think they would have got those guys uh, booted out of town. They brought them back to Canada at some point. They just lack <laughs> police <laughs> enforcement. Right. Yeah. You would think with all the uh, the trouble the Renault brothers caused over the years that yeah. there would be a dragnet, a constant yeah. dragnet, uh, or surveillance yeah. on him. Yeah. Well, here we are. Mr. C's getting released. Here we go. And uh, our, our pal Ray again is coming out. He's so great. Yeah, right him. now some mysterious guard is giving him the Al Yeah, the Al Cavering. Yeah, he's got a beard probably in one arm. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's who's my holding guess. the flashlight yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah, that's him with the flashlight, exactly. That's, and that, that's actually his face. Flashlight. The, that flashlight is his face. It's just an orb. He's, like he's Laura, yeah, like the face. <laughs> Need some light? Here's my face. <laughs> this is great. This is this 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 kind of this buildup of this ending. I loved obviously the Lynch is just a master of keeping like the camera stationary. And, you know, with the lighting and the action that's going on, I mean, this is a a fantastic shot, but it's building towards something. Obviously, we know that uh, there's going to be a confrontation with... uh, with uh, Mr. C and Ray. We're, we're probably not going to get it here in the end of part seven. The music starts to build. We see a great shot of Warden Murphy. And then we have this overhead shot of the woods. It's like, this really is, it's like I was saying earlier, this like, we're at like, the end of kind of like an act one. 
And um, it, it really kind of has this, I wouldn't say this finality to it, but kind of this kind of cliffhanger, the suspense to it, which we didn't get in like either part five or part six. And uh, um, I really liked the, the buildup of the, this ending. This is one of my favorite endings, obviously. And, and in addition to the closing shot, which we'll get to at the diner, the double R. Yeah, and I was like, hey, what's the over-under on just like scenes before Ray gets killed? <laughs> I remember you it's saying thought, that, yeah. right? Yeah. That was, that's that, isn't that, yeah. interesting is that yeah. both of us didn't have any idea that he was going to make it past the next episode. Yeah, he had a very wonderful death. He had a really, he went out well. He's still in the lodge. I mean, one of the few, one of the few regular dudes that just ended up in the lodge somehow. He did. Dougie, yeah. him. Anyone else? <laughs> um, Maddie. What did Maddie ever do? Nothing. Maddie was just a poor victim. Yeah, Maddie was like virginal, essentially. She was completely innocent. Didn't do no, I think Maddie was it. more kind of, yeah. I mean, can you think about Maddie's backstory being from like Missoula? And, you know, I'm not saying she was, you know, uh, from the wrong side of the tracks, but you kind of get a sense, like kind of falling for James the way that she did, that you know, Maddie was an interesting character, different than Laura uh, in a lot of ways, but uh, um, I don't think she was all, you know, pure and, and innocent like and she was older than Laura I think that the assumption is Maddie was like several years older than Laura like maybe even like 25 she did bring her glasses those cost a lot of money her parents were probably really pissed <laughs> yeah. alright here's that final scene the one you love with uh, Billy at the, at the double R and it just Who's switches played by yeah. Riley Lynch right, yeah. little Riley Lynch Lynch's son David's little Riley, son yeah. little ne'er-do-well son yeah, he comes in he says anyone seen Billy and uh, just takes off and uh here we have this Switches. great shot. Yeah. Now, do you see in the lower right-hand corner in that booth that Heidi's going to walk up? The back of that guy, mm-hmm. doesn't that look like the back of Bobby? Is it Bobby, yeah. But it's not, is it? I, we never get to see his face. It I don't could think be. Any... I'm trying to look at him now. It doesn't look, it looks, he looks a little bit smaller than Bobby, but it does look a lot like Bobby, doesn't it? That's interesting. He's got like the leather, yeah. the black leather jacket and the hair obviously matches. That's and uh, there's Shelly right there on, on the left-hand side. Of and the it's clearly a different shot. Like the earlier shot was to a different day, different characters. Completely. completely. Yeah. And, and then the, the soundtrack. Sound, yeah, it starts getting evil. We were like, uh-oh. We knew just from the ending soundtrack that this shit was about to go down in the next episode. And boy, yeah. does it. It does, yeah. It this does. this really was that that it just listening to this that song Sleepwalk. It's what it's called, Sleepwalk. With, I think it was the Wyndham Merle theme from uh, the original series that was kind of like playing underneath this ominous uh, undercurrent. And uh, uh, this was, I thought, a great, great episode and uh, one of my favorite endings. I, I, I don't like the musical acts as much as you do. In fact, I really don't like the musical acts at all. So anytime we get a non-musical act ending. I just yeah, latch on to it. Yeah, especially this one. It's good. Like a lot of the ones, the endings have really surreal endings that are not musical. I wish they were 18 of these. I love these. Well, yeah. I'm going to hate on it still, but, uh, you know. Any last thoughts <laughs> for this episode? <laughs> um, no, I don't have any lost that. Why don't you have some kind of like great ending, some witty ending to just like close us out? We'll just go out like with a, go with a bang. I got nothing. <laughs> on that note, thanks for tuning in. <laughs>
I've never really left home, Gordon. 